Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And, and for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. What film or story would you say that you've you've seen or heard or read more than any other story that you really just don't like at all? <laughs> um, Is there one? Well, Do you ever think about that? Do you go, yeah, I have seen this so many times and boy, I just don't like it. Well, there's a trope and we, this just came up and I think we, I think we talked about it maybe a little bit during there. It's um, Cinderella is a, is sure. a is a big one for me. I, I I that's ages poorly on me. Yes, very true. Well, I was thinking about this um, because you know. Are, are you talking about just one that you're just fatigue? You're just tired of it. No, and I just realized I just don't like it. Oh, <laughs> I really don't like it. It was it's Peter Pan. I have I have seen the play. You know, many times have taken the kids to it. I've seen it when, like when friends have done it back in college or whatever. I've seen I've seen that play a lot. I've seen the Disney movie a lot. I've seen iterations of it a lot. Uh, you know, people keep telling that story and in different ways. And you know, Steven Spielberg had his his version, and, and you know, everybody has these different versions of it. And as much as I mean, there are elements to the very uh, the various versions that people make like the songs in the disney one uh well at least not the the non-racist songs i'll say uh, are can be a bit enjoyable um and and there's some fun to the idea of you know going off to neverland and flying and pirates and mermaids and all of that sort of thing but man i am just done with that story i really am done with it it's just it wears on me, and I. You've you've I, become I, the old man. You are. You know who else said this? Robin Williams in Hook. Yeah, you true. have become old Peter. Whoa, whoa! I'll bet I'll bet you can't hear uh, the magic bell when it rings either, as it comes by from uh, <laughs> from Polar Express. Oddly enough, my daughter was shaking one in my ear earlier tonight, and, you could, you and heard lo nothing. and behold, I heard nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Get off my lawn! <laughs> so we have been. Uh, the truth is, we have been um, uh, backpedaling a little bit uh, for a, a number of weeks. We've been stocking up on shows for a number of weeks, and it's 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 been exhausting. Uh, we've been recording well, and watching a lot of movies, movies. So many movies, <laughs> doing so many shows so fast because we have to. We've, we've had to accelerate our end of the year schedule by a couple of months uh, because Andy is is going away. He's being taken away uh, for a little while, and he needs going to need a break. I am going to need a little bit of. A Do you want right, So where where Andrew are you going? Well, I have a buddy who has a kidney issue, and so I am actually going to willingly let a doctor slice me open, take out a perfectly good kidney, and and then stitch me up and give this guy my kidney. So, And leave you in a bathtub full of ice. 
Yes, yes. <laughs> Please yeah. tell I me I that's how this I ends. Didn't, I didn't mention Mexico. I didn't mention you know the the ten thousand dollars of shady money. I don't care anything about that. All I want to say is Lucy too better be called Andy. <laughs> Take the kidney, replace it with some fantastic, uh, fantastic psychotropic uh, uh, future drug. Am I going to be turned into a hard drive in the end? <laughs> USB, not a hard drive. That would have been oh, right. a step up. <laughs> Maybe I will be. The hard you drive. will be the hard drive. Uh, you are giving a kidney and I, I joke about that because, uh, I am so, uh, I'm so impressed and I, I don't know how to handle, uh, fear. And so, uh, I make fun of it, but it is a, this is a big deal and it's a scary thing. And I'm, I'm, as I've told you before, I am deeply honored to be in your orbit, man. I think it's a big deal, uh, that yeah. you are doing this for your friend and he better be grateful. That's all I'm saying. Right, that son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so we are. There going to be, I, I think, only one film board just coming right up. Uh, you are you're going to be missing the film board uh, this coming week, which is really sad because um, I really am looking forward to it. <laughs> I know you're going to miss opening weekend of uh, the Hobbit. I know Battle I'm not going to be able armies. to get out of bed for a few weeks. So I'll be know. seeing it. Uh, Hopefully before the end of the year. I am looking forward to listening to the episode once I finally get to see it. <laughs> It'll be a treat for you. I know. You'll never want to do anything again until that would leave the show at all. Because <laughs> in our completely, demonstrably incapable hands. Uh, this is... Uh, so you're going to be taking pretty much the month of December off. And we will come back with, uh, with new shows. Um, new and current shows uh, that aren't faked. Uh, in early January. That's it. 2015. In our uh, Christmas episode, we're going to be announcing the winner of the Pony Prize, right? Yes. That's coming right up. We have, we've been talking about the Pony Prize for years. We now have a stable, nay, stable of prizes mm. uh, that we have corralled. And wow. uh, we are very excited to, uh, to start shipping. So make right. room in your house, winner. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's pretty. We got some. So we got some good things coming together. We're never doing a contest again. <laughs> <laughs> this contest costs so much money. <laughs> uh, but you know, we're very excited about uh, the the some of the donations that we've been getting for this thing, uh, or, and uh, uh, some of the in kind uh, gifts. And so we're very excited to be able to um, to do this. Yeah, so, we'll talk about that more next week uh, yes. when we announce the winner. Yes, indeed. Very exciting. Looking forward to it. Welcome, everybody, to the next reel. Uh, I'm Pete Wright. That there is Andy Nelson. Hey! And we spoil movies. We're so glad you joined us for this uh, uh, fantastic... This is a talk about a family film. Uh, we are, we're talking about 2000s Requiem for a Dream tonight, so get ready, uh, to, uh, pull out your popcorn and tissues and settle in for a good cry. Bring the kitties. Bring the kitties. Uh, but first, you should uh, you should hang out with us at the website, thenextreel.com. You can uh, learn all about us, about the past uh, past shows that we have done. Uh, you can join us for our film board episodes and uh, hear the monthly gang of thugs gather together for our, uh, our new release episodes happen once a month. Um, and uh, you can join us on all of the sundry 
social networks, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Google+, and Instagram. And while you're there, you should partake in the uh, Instagram Guest Movie Challenge. That would be a good place to go. Hey, you know, usually here we would be talking about how excited we are that... uh, well, and I think, uh, you know, judging by recent performance, how excited we are that one of our listeners has trumped us somehow in the, in the Pony Prize, right? Absolutely. In our efforts to release the Kraken, I think the, the, our Kraken has gotten beaten more time than their Kraken. <laughs> it's not about beating people, Pete. This is a full-on Pacific Rim kind of <laughs> contest right here. Wow! Uh, but here's what's here's what's so exciting about this is I'm very excited. This is we have to talk about tonight our very first product. I know it's really exciting. Are you, are you excited about that? I am. I'm quivering with joy. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you would stop because now that's gross. Um, <clears throat> Why we're excited about this is because, uh, you know, we, we had this idea a long time ago that when we did the Pony Prize, we wanted to, to release a shirt of some sort. We really wanted to have a shirt, a custom shirt as part of this thing. And because we're us, uh, we didn't get around to, <laughs> to it for like eight months. <laughs> uh, and so we went ahead and we finally we finally got around to it. And you know what? The first thing that struck us was, you know, we've got this, this guy, friend of the show. Uh, and a, a really fantastic uh, artist, uh, Joel Micah Harris. We've talked about him before. When I, I discovered him, when I, I saw his uh, a post on Twitter of these fantastic um, um, uh, kind of mashups, of, yeah, the samurai uh, superhero mashups that were right. just great. I had, I thought those were so much fun. So I reached out to Joel and we and asked him uh, if what he would think about doing some custom artwork for us for a shirt. So we did. We commissioned uh, Joel to to do some custom artwork and the idea that we came out, I think this was your idea, right? This, the, the concept was uh, the, the top five films. Yeah. We're trying to figure out a way to incorporate maybe like, you know, some, some of our favorites and why not go to the top five? So we did. So we went to the top five. So we went through the top five of our films. We, we, we gave those top five, our top five lists to Joel and he came back with this really cool, uh, design. It, it is a film reel. You, this is this is a theater for the mind right now. So imagine, close your eyes, everybody. Is it is it the next reel? It actually? is the next. It's actually the next film reel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and inside, kind of nestled comfortably inside each of five of the uh, what do they call them on the, those vent, ventilation holes? What are those called? The anatomy of a film reel. That's you should know. Question. You should know this. I, I should know that. What are they? It's like spokes. Or yeah, they're like spokes. Uh, they're, I don't know. Five giant holes on right. the side of this film uh, this this film reel and uh joel did some hand-drawn animation uh a cell animation of uh of a an iconic frame from each of the five top films very cool it is very cool it is really very very cool um and uh, you know i we're gonna this uh, there's a little bit of a spoiler what are the top five films well, Network has been sitting pretty as our number one for uh, quite a while. Quite a while. And then uh, uh, Raising Arizona kind of jumped up there, uh, kind of snuck its way into there, didn't there? It didn't certainly it? did. And then uh, we've got uh, Jaws, which has been in there for a little while. Yeah. Seven. And then yeah, there's a little bit of a spoiler here with uh, 
<clears throat> Maybe tonight's movie? Tonight's movie snuck right <laughs> up to number five. <laughs> Amazing film uh, in Requiem for a Dream. So uh, this is a really fun piece of artwork. And this is, you know, we've been doing this show. We, we you know, we sang happy birthday uh, to ourselves. Uh, th- three years we've been doing the show. And never once have we have we had anything to offer um, uh, to to our listeners. And so we're very excited to have this shirt, to be able to to kind of celebrate three years of talking about movies. And really, I, you know, our hope is uh, that, that you all really like the shirt and you feel comfortable uh, spending your hard-earned uh, dough to support the show. We do make a little bit. We obviously commissioned the, the work from Joel. He'll make a little bit. Uh, but, you know, this show does come with some costs associated with it. And so we would very much love, as much as this is a passion for us to be able to do the show uh, and, and be able to afford our, our time and uh, resources to do the show, and, and we love doing it. If you guys like the show, if you like listening to the show, uh, we sure would appreciate it if you would help support the show by celebrating with us three years of, of talking about movies and, um, and wear this custom piece from Joel Michael Harris on your chest, uh, celebrating uh, where our top five sits as of now, the end of 2014. Does Very that cover cool. it? I think that covers it. And then I suppose we should also mention that you know, whoever it is who does end up winning our pony prize in the drawing next week is actually going to get one of these as a part of the pony prize. We should. Actually, I'm really glad you said that because we're going to do the drawing next week. That means if you think you're in the running uh, or you have uh, been playing a lot, uh, the Instagram hashtag pony prize challenge, probably hold off on buying a shirt. Just or, in case. Or else realize you'll, you'll, you may get another one. Right, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I should say, buy as many as you want and know you will get another one. How's that? <laughs> there you go. So if you think you're interested in buying a shirt, which we hope you are, just head over to thenextreel.com and uh, there's a little button right there on the top of the sidebar there. Right there at the very top, it's got the shirt on it. So click on it and it'll take you over to the uh, the store where you can buy the shirt. I think I'm that's clicking it. right now. You should. <laughs> Premature click. Premature oh. click. <laughs> Let's do trailers. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to go first. Okay, just to get it out of the way. Just get it out of the way. And it it fits with what I was talking about earlier. Right, I wonder I to... wonder if people will see this coming. I you know, I don't think they will. <laughs> I I don't think people have any clue that I'm going to talk about Joe Wright's Pan. It's not coming out till next summer. The trailer hit a few weeks back. Um uh, but it's coming out next July. Um it's it's kind of the prequel to Peter Pan, I guess. And speaking of all the various iterations of, of Peter Pan, here we go, giving a, a backstory to where Peter Pan came from. And I will say, it looks... Uh, it looks pretty. There's lots of pretty stuff going on here. There's, there's an interesting element to uh, developing this backstory for Peter Pan as this orphan kid who has this letter from his mother and somehow that i saw that movie once it was called annie yeah right exactly and and he gets kidnapped by uh blackbeard and his and his cronies blackbeard um played interestingly uh by peter jackson hugh jack hugh jackman uh yeah peter jackson I mean, either one of them would do probably a fine job. It's actually Peter Jackson, but he's doing some amazing... (laughs) This is Weta, let me tell you. Some amazing (laughs) CG work. 
<laughs> it blew me away. <laughs> oh. Oh yeah, yeah. Hugh Jackman, you know, Peter Jackson, <laughs> almost the same guy. But oddly enough, he looks like Robert Carlyle. So <laughs> So explain that one to me. I have no Anyway, yeah, so Hugh Jackman. I don't know where Peter Jackson is. <laughs> so weird. What a weird brain thing. Anyway, uh Blackbeard apparently is in this world and is kidnapping children to mine for him i guess and and uh that peter pan meets hook and befriends him uh hook is garrett headland and they kind of team up and somehow uh the the tribal peoples of netherland neverland are involved but they look like i don't know they look almost more like colorful circus performers and rooney mara is playing tiger lily and there's been quite a bit of talk about you know casting a white girl you know the whole whitewashing thing uh to play tiger lily this native character although neverland is a fictional land you know there's all this nonsense about the casting of tiger lily and and just everything going along with it and i mean to be honest i i i think that part of the the film is is uh never been one of my favorites anyway of the of the entire story so i i don't know it looks very colorful very interesting but i just can't again i can't say that i'm that excited about it i mean joe wright has done some great stuff i love pride and prejudice i really enjoy hannah atonement has a lot of great stuff going for it um you know i i've I've skipped some of the stuff like the soloist anna karenina but i I don't know i'm not quite sure what to make of this one um I, i just I, I can't get myself that excited. I felt obligated to talk about it just because I have this uh, Peter Pan aversion. Um, but um, uh, and the writer is uh, Jason Fuchs coming on board to write it. And uh, you know, other than Ice Age Continental Drift and a few TV projects, uh, he hasn't done much. So it's just one of those interesting things that uh, here's this guy doing this big Peter Pan prequel, and I don't know. I have a feeling it's something that my kids will really enjoy, and I will be sitting there going, uh, another Peter Pan movie. Shaking my head. I feel for you, man. Yeah. This is a, this is a, a movie that will probably be fine by a good director delivering quality work with uh, a solid cast about a, uh, in a topic area that never needed really to be made. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, and I always think it's a mistake to name the film the same thing as the likely critical reaction to it. <laughs> yeah, that never works out very well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I guess it could go either way. You know, yeah, uh, that's right. the date. That's that the is the danger. Uh, the other thing that I find interesting about this film is that it seems to be very much a a uh, at least from the early. Um, kind of press material it's very much a a uh peter jackson film, uh, a hugh jackman uh film i mean we um it he's getting an awful lot of press for his really great looking blackbeard you got it you yeah. got it oh completely you know. i agree i agree so um and uh, so i you know i think it's uh, visually it it, uh, it has a lot going for it uh, interesting twists and so if you're not uh, old and withered up inside this might be an interesting uh, interesting one to take in i guarantee i'll be seeing it cuz my kids are very excited uh, Bill yeah. is a comedy it doesn't strike me as that funny 
comedy adventure. Yeah. Huh. Nah, laugh a minute. Kids. <laughs> Orphan kids in the mines. Remember how funny? Speaking of real depth of cinema, mm-hmm. my trailer is, uh, I may be more excited for my trailer. <laughs> uh, I am doing, this has been out for a little while, but I watch it every day, multiple times a day, uh, because it's still fantastic. Minions, coming summer of 2015. Uh, the animated uh, story of Kevin Stewart and Bob. It is a prequel to Despicable Me uh, about the uh, the beginnings of the minions who support Gru. Uh, you know, we could see how they are, their their lives uh, as they work to support the most evil creatures on the planet and have real trouble finding a good boss. And it looks hysterical. I'm sorry. I just love it. I am weak willed. For these little guys. <laughs> I totally am. You know what it is? I have a theory. It's not even a very good theory. But I think that uh, one of the things that I think is so compelling about these creatures, I think when in the absence of language, uh, it is, it's sort of universally slapstick. Like there's no depth of, um, there, there isn't in so much depth of story that you end up losing the story and falling out of love with the characters. You know what I mean? But at the same time, they have done so much to bring character out of these little guys with such a strange language. And so I'm yeah. really it's a it is a bizarre paradox uh, that I think we're we're stuck in. The film is directed by Kyle Balda and Pierre Coffin, and uh, Pierre and Chris Renaud. Uh, are the voices of all the minions, and they were actually the directors of Despicable Me and, and Despicable Me 2. And so um, you can totally, I mean, I don't know the story behind the minions, but you can totally just sort of feel how it happens. <laughs> These two directors <laughs> are probably voicing animatics, and everybody just falls in love with it uh, in the in the process. And so I, I am I'm very excited to see how this shakes out. What do you think? Am I nuts? I no, I am excited too. I mean, I am right there with you as far as my love for the minions and just the, uh, the strangeness of them as characters and the, uh, you know, (laughs) this, this creates an interesting addition to the, uh, uh, just the, uh, scope of these characters and the fact that apparently they live for a really, really long time, like forever, like forever. Yeah. (laughs) There's just uh, no question. They live in space. They live everywhere. Right. And they come from under the sea. It's just, they live with dinosaurs. I mean, (laughs) it's it's very interesting. And I do agree with you. There's something about this this, uh, uh, nonsense language that they've created for these guys that is so much fun to just uh, listen to and watch because you can totally understand what it is they're saying and doing. And it does, it actually takes me back to... I don't know if this is a an apt comparison, but it takes me back to like Charlie Chaplin and and the, yes. the and the Buster Keaton and and all that kind of slapstick short film um, sort of shenanigans that would go on where you didn't necessarily need the dialogue to carry the story. You would just see uh, funny people doing funny things. And you would be able to tell what's going on. And you know, I mean, my daughter is in love with Charlie Chaplin because of that very reason. And she's equally in love with the minions. And I think that that's what these guys have smartly, uh, found. I totally agree. And I think that is a great comparison because of that lack of language. Uh, you, you, you know, the silent film, 
the silent film comedies are really, I, I think that's, it, it's channeled in minions. And I think, uh, I think that lends, uh, a, a sort of cultural depth to these weird little yellow creatures. I know I'm totally overthinking these weird little yellow creatures, but I do love them so much. Mine comes out July 10th, 2015, so start your summers. Hey, Pete. Andrew. We got a winner. (laughs) I said we got a winner. (laughs) I like the way I feel. Now when I get the sun, I smile. I'm going to be on television. I just wanted to be on the show. (laughs) I love you, Harry. I love you too, love. So don't worry, Seymour. It'll all work out. You'll see already. In the end, it's all night. This film is a pick-me-up, huh? Uh, you know, I will say, as as hard as this film is to watch, it leaves me in an amazing state of joy at the end. <laughs> <laughs> is that what that feeling is? <laughs> And it's because um, it's because I'm watching a film by a filmmaker who does stuff in the process of making a film that truly just blows me away every time I watch it. It really is a visually stunning film, and it, it becomes for me. Uh, and, and I haven't read the book. Um, have you read? Yeah, the book? I haven't. Any, okay. I, I haven't. No. All right. So um, it, it becomes for me like just candy. Uh, it, it is. It is just succulent um to to watch this film and you i I, for me it it doesn't take very long before i'm not really paying as much attention to what is going on uh and just letting it wash over me it's just fascinating uh, how he puts these visuals together it is just wonderful uh, of course, we are talking about Requiem for a Dream 2000, uh, Requiem for a Dream from the year 2000. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a reboot. Uh, the director, obviously, uh, Darren Aronofsky, uh, based on uh, the book and adaptation by uh, Hubert Selby, stars uh, Jared Leto, Jennifer Conley, um, uh, uh, Marlon Wayans, uh, a wonderful performance by War- Marlon Wayans, and, and, of course, the incredibly challenging uh, uh, turn by the heroine of our series, Ellen mm. Burstyn. Wow. Yeah. This is a film that when I first saw this, I was like... Every school, I mean, it's not really an appropriate film to show to kids, but I feel like every high school kid needs to watch this film to just understand the dangers of addiction. This was, uh, this movie had some trouble with the ratings. It did. Yes, it did. You want to talk about that just real quick? It's, It's got dark stuff going on in it. And it's, I mean... It's the sort of film that, I mean, when you when you hit that third act, there's stuff that that is happening that is just really uh, intense. And uh, 
as intense as it is, it's integral to the story. It's incredibly important to have the elements that happen in those scenes. And the MPAA wanted to give it an NC-17. And, you know, the whole thing with the NC-17 rating and the MPAA, uh, I mean, it's just one of those things that is just very contentious. And it always bothers me because this rating was meant to create uh, a new rating past R that just is for strictly adult films. And unfortunately, it, it, you know, it immediately got labeled as, uh, you know, pornography rating. All the, uh, at the time, the video stores said they wouldn't carry NC-17 and they lost the whole point of what this rating was supposed to be. And yet the MPAA still tries to give this rating out periodically. This was one of the films that did it. And of course, all the theater chains say, well, we won't show it because it's NC-17. And, and so every filmmaker who goes up against this, uh, this rating by the MPAA really has to do this big battle against them and try to appeal it and try to uh, do whatever they can. Aronofsky appealed the rating saying that if we if I cut anything out of it, it's going to dilute the message. And uh, the MPAA, of course, denied it. Luckily, Artisan uh, Entertainment had come in. Uh, they had done distributed uh, pie for him beforehand, and they wanted to release it unrated. Uh, they believed in it and thought that they could do it. And there are still some theater chains who will still show unrated films out there, typically more of the art house uh, theaters. And so it did get its release as an unrated film, the one that Darren Aronofsky had approved. And, um, but because of that, it just didn't get as wide a release as it could have and perhaps should have. They did end up cutting it down to an R-rated version to reduce the, uh, the sex scene at the end um, when they released it on video, um, that's really the only scene that they kind of cut down. But, um, but I mean, and they also obviously have the unrated version out there, which I think is the only one that ever made it to DVD and Blu-ray and all that sort of stuff. Right, but, and that's what you can get on direct-to-digital, too, is the unrated director's cut. Yeah, right, right. It, 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 you know, obviously the cast and, and Aronofsky came out and, and spoke very strongly about it, uh, about this ratings issue. Uh, and, uh, you know, their contention and, uh, is that, you know, it, it really underscores um, a, a misunderstanding and a misguided intent, uh, a misguided understanding of what, you know, what youth knows about and uh that uh, there is a um uh, an attempt to squash uh uh sexuality in the face of really you know horrific violence in in other films uh, you know films that 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 don't get an R or NC17 rating that are horribly violent uh but don't have any of the sex in them um you know while while this film otherwise is not that violent it does depict some uncomfortable sequences of drug use uh and um uh but and and d- that are difficult to watch certainly but was really given that rating for for the sexual content and and you know i the version i watched uh you know it'd been uh, uh several years since i've seen the film and and the version i watched was this uh the director's cut the unrated version i don't remember if i'd seen the the unrated version uh before but honestly i hadn't even recalled that this was controversy uh about this particular film until after i watched it and started reading up on it uh it didn't strike me as particularly shocking obviously with eyes that have seen more since but uh, what was your take on it? Did it seem like it was worth it? Well, uh, you mean the the unrated nature of it? Yeah. 
I mean, it, it, it's, it's just one of those things where, and you know, I call it a sex scene. It's really not a sex scene. I mean, there is something sexual happening in the scene, um, but not in the nature that's in any way, shape or form enjoyable uh, right. for the viewer or Marion, the character that is participating in it. It's, it's, it's a very uh, uncomfortable scene to watch because we are watching this girl at the bottom of her place in this story where she has uh, decided that the, the, what she needs in order to um, be happy and kind of get back to where she wants to be is to be high. And the only way she can do that, because she doesn't have any money, she doesn't have uh, her boyfriend around, um, is to sell herself for mm-hmm. sex. And it's, it's in the really just the most horrifying way in this in very this, public very is this it's, yeah it's this group uh you know this whole group of of men watching chanting as she and this other woman are are uh, you know in performing the yeah they're performing yeah, perform, right. yeah doing a show and it's it's just it's it's sickening to watch yes. just as sickening as the other three stories uh you know it's it's very difficult to see i mean i guess marlon wayne's story is not it's it's you know he's in prison and stirring yeah. slop i mean yeah. it's not compared that guy got off easy yeah, he's the he's the one who's just like, well, maybe he can make it out of this. <laughs> he got whole a G rating. His, yeah. his. <laughs> stir that soup. <laughs> <laughs> oh, NC seventeen on that. Woo. Did you see the soup? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Did you see the soup? Uh, so, again, like you said, the MPAA is uh, really misguided in their uh, in their. Uh, need to slap a rating arbitrarily on something just because of what happens to be on on screen without paying any attention to what the message is going on behind that. I mean, I I would be more comfortable giving this an R rating so that more people could potentially see this because it, I mean, it's, an, it's an uncomfortable thing to watch and mm-hmm. it really portrays the, the horrors of these addictions that these people fall into uh, rather than some of the uh, atrocious horror films that, that I always end up watching like um, uh, you know like Hostel or things like that mm-hmm. that it's just I mean they, it's the, the torture porn sort of stuff the right. fact that those films can get the R rating and this film that uh, is actually trying to say something cannot. I think that is the problem that well, the MPAA. Uh, that's that's with. why I, I I wanted to hear your thoughts on that because that's you know that Jared Leto came in, in one of his press uh, pressers was saying that you know this was this is one of those things that I he said I've shown this to young people people who can't see this film in a theater uh, and they they change the way they think about you know their lives as a result of it. This is uh, it, it it's horrible. Nobody comes away thinking this is at all aspirational nobody comes away saying they want to live this lifestyle when they see this film they always come away thinking oh my gosh uh there was nothing sexy about that sex there was nothing i mean it was all at the very lowest of these as you say of each of these characters arcs and um and and being able to to have that conversation i think is is uh, it, it trumps ratings I, often and and that's you know, I don't know. I'm certainly not going to show my 12 year old uh, Requiem for a Dream, but but at some point we're going to have that conversation, and it's going to be you know it's it's because it's important. Uh, it, it's an it, it says an important thing. Absolutely, yeah, 
Yeah, it's. It, I mean, it is a film. I. I mean, I would would. <laughs> I just don't know how, but I would love to have uh, youth watch this. Maybe when they turn seventeen, mm-hmm. you know, this is something that that everybody watches just to look at the horrors of addiction, whether it's addiction to uh, television uh, to kind of get through the day, or diet pills, or drugs, or uh, anything to uh, that you can become addicted to to. Um, kind of try to get your mind to whatever it is that you dream that you can achieve without actually focusing on the life that you're actually in and trying to actually make it there uh, in a realistic setting. Right. And that is ultimately the message of the film. I'm glad you brought us around to that. Yeah. Yeah. Because we could talk about this other stuff all day long. <laughs> right. Damn the MPA. <laughs> the film is is um you know told in some uh typical uh, fantastically uh, um frenetic Arnofsky style uh and it does explore uh the the uh, the way addiction uh infects uh four different characters uh, four characters in this film. And it's one of the it's tricky. Um, the way the the story is constructed, because I, I think at its very uh, at its very best, uh, there is a a uh, a point in the film where you really believe that all of these people are going to make it. Yeah, and it's it's fairly early in the film, and you think Grandma's going to lose weight, and the kids are going to open the the store, and the other guy's going to have he's going to be fine with his his girlfriend. They're going to be fine. And their house is is really getting put together, and and everybody's got work, and uh, and it's it's completely that that point is you know you hit this sort of aspirational bit where where you see. Uh, the payoff of the lure of the substances that they're on, uh, mm-hmm. that, you know what, you really can change your body with these, these little drugs. You really can, you can, you can lose weight. Um, and, uh, you can put the cash away in order to open the store. Um, and your girlfriend can start making, making, uh, clothes. You can do yeah. that. You can have everything you possibly want. And then one day you're running from your own refrigerator. Right. That happens to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Security refrigerators. I, well, I, th- I think that twist ends up being really artful uh, and, and something that is and profound uh, because it's not just a surface. Uh, it doesn't really, to me, feel like a, any sort of surface achievement. It feels very much like a like a substantive achievement of goals and dreams. It fe- because they, we've already seen that, particularly in Leto's character, um, we've already seen he, him at his lowest. The film opens with him at a low, stealing his his mother's television set to hawk it again uh, and again and again, and um, you know so it really feels like he's climbing up out of this trough and figuring out how to use the, the life in order to, um, in order to make something of himself. And then it all turns. And that for me is, is the highlight of the, the structure of this film. It's, it is a really interesting structure watching the kind of the ups and downs. And it's interesting that it's tied into seasons also, which I believe that's also how the novel is structured where you have these three seasons, uh, fittingly, summer is really kind of where you have the high point. Fall is 
aptly named as you start seeing the fall of mm-hmm. each of these characters, even though they still have some hope. They're still trying to cling to those uh, those last uh, golden t- moments of summer and everything. And then, of course, winter, when everything uh, really falls apart. And it's it's it really fits wonderfully uh, structurally the way that that builds and tells the story of all of these characters with their highs and lows and the things that they... Um, st- the the paths they go on to get what they need and it's interesting how it can start so small uh for them you know in in all their cases sarah starts uh really just trying to do these diets because she wants to fit into this red dress again and, and go on television and, right to go on television because yeah. she gets this this you know one of these you know random sales calls that says oh we're going to get you on the show and of course it's it not isn't necessarily a, a a call to actually get on the show you know we never really find out that whole thing but it, it just seems kind of like a scam perhaps um regardless it sets her off on getting into this red dress she tries dieting um one of her friends mentions these weight loss pills and it just it seems very casual. It doesn't seem like anything uh, grand could potentially happen with this. Likewise, with uh, Harry and Tyrone, they kind of start as you know, hey, you know, I mean, yes, they're already kind of in the life of drugs and crime and all of that, so they're already in a place where they're off to a bad start. But at least it seems manageable, and they actually do have a goal, which is distributors again, you know. <laughs> within their world they're doing well they want to be distributors and they initially are like okay well hey we just got to test it make sure that this stuff is is good and it seems like they're keeping their wits about them as they move forward and do this and things seem to be working um but you know things happen and uh, you keep seeing that that progression as the you know oh well this diet pill's not working for anymore okay well i'll sneak a second one and and you, you know they uh the uh tyrone is talking to the uh one of the dealers that and it ends up going bad and everyone gets killed and and you kind of see how these things slowly start turning and turning and turning and the spiral begins these people just don't have uh, the control or the wherewithal to uh, get themselves going the other direction. Well, and it's it, it, there is a, another part of that twist that I like so much is that is that it it not only you know shows the the fall as they start careening kind of off the cliff, but uh, but it shows the uh, the importance for each of them of their escape mechanism. And yes. Sarah's is is the most I think. Um, it's kind of the most interesting for me because um, she, in in her monologue, uh, she has a, a beautiful scene uh, between her son Harry. Uh, you know where she she says, "I've I've got nothing, right? I have nothing left. You are gone. Your father is gone, and I am an old lady, and I've got nothing." And uh, we we see we have seen her uh and and this sense of escape through the television that i think is is 
um, it, it really is palpable. I mean, she's alone, and Harry becomes the enabler of that as his as his fortunes begin to turn, and he has a little bit more money. He goes and buys her, uh, you know, not uh, you know a nice dinner out with him or some you know <laughs> uh, uh, some book club membership. But he he buys her a larger, uh, more prominent television that takes up uh, an, an even greater role in her uh, in her escape, uh, and. And, and so that escape for her leads directly to this drug addiction, to these diet pills that, um, you know, I, I think is interesting because I don't think I've ever seen um, a, um, a, a neighborhood uh, grandma addict like this. Yeah. Right. This this is this is a to me a it's shocking not because of what she does but because of who she is and it makes what she does that much more palpable. It's horrifying. It truly is uh, horrifying because despite the 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 struggle in the relationship between Sarah and Harry. I mean, as you mentioned, he's always going and stealing her television to go hawk it to get some money to buy drugs. She goes, buys it back. You've got this perpetual cycle going on. There's clearly some some problems in their relationship and, and uh, her as this enabler. Um, but she doesn't have anything. And she has her friends. She sits out on the curb with them and all that. And, and, but she, and Ellen Burstyn really created this character that is, uh, despite her flaws, you feel the need to, uh, to – you're drawn to her. You feel the need to kind of uh, support her decisions because you, she has this uh, grandmotherly slash motherly presence that uh, you want everything to go okay for. And, and when she has those moments, like you said, that monologue, which is so touching, and it's just you know how she has nothing and these pills, it's a reason to get up in the morning and, uh, you know it really it breaks your heart and draws you into that character and it it gives you this this person that we like you said we've never seen this before and it makes it um that much more powerful that uh, selby created her as really one of our kind of key protagonists of this story that we are attached to drawn to and then are forced to watch her fall um she, uh, Ellen Burstyn says that this is, uh, that, that she's, this is perhaps her, her most challenging role. Um, this is what she said in 2000, uh, of her performance in this film, uh, being able to, to truck in a, a drug movie, uh, like this, um, is, it, it is disconcerting, disquieting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she delivers, I think, uh, the, it's the performance of her career in this film. I mean, it's, it is, it is stunningly good. And, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's, uh, yeah, it blows me away every time I see her, how good she is in this. And as much as I enjoy Aaron Brockovich and Julia Roberts in it, uh, Ellen Burstyn should have won the Oscar for this. Uh, you know, no questions asked. Uh, even against the other ones, Juliette Binoche for Chocolat, Joan Allen for The Contender, or Laura Linney for You Can Count On Me. I think yeah. Ellen Burstyn uh, absolutely towered over all of those other uh, actresses it, this year and should have won. It's just, it was such a dark story. It's not something the Academy uh, 
voters want to vote for. No, and that's that's the problem because you know I think probably uh, what hurt her performance was being in a film that also had these other things: the degrading sex shows, the you know the controversy around ratings. I, it just it just hurt because otherwise her performance is it is transcendent. Yeah. Uh, and as a short, you can imagine just taking her her sequence as a short and just just watching her for you know thirty minutes uh, go through that transformation and run from her appliances and 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 end uh, in in the very lowest of the low. <laughs> I mean, she's just. Uh, as she's, you know, involuntarily committed uh, uh, to a, a psychiatric treatment and gets shock therapy. I mean, it, it is just uh, stunning. I, I could absolutely watch that soup to nuts without the rest of the film. Even she is that yeah, good. She is that good. She uh, she brings the the uh, gravitas to the performance. She has. Um, I mean, they all really tap into the soul of the film. They all really carry a lot of weight as to that power of, of hope and loss that I think is so critical for mm-hmm. this story. And, uh, but hers, I think for me, I always find it the most heartbreaking, the most heartbreaking because it's the one I can connect to the easiest. I mean, she might as well have been grandma Wanda, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like she's, she's my grandmother, yeah. um, uh, you know, capital M. My well, she's, my, she's my mother, you know, it's, right. watch, watching her. It's like, gosh, she really, uh, I mean, I'm not saying my mother is in this place, but, <laughs> but, but it really, you know, she just, but just Ellen Burstyn and her look and everything reminds me of my mother. And so when I watch her, I feel like I, in particular, just the way that she performs here, it just, it really hits me. It's like, oof. Uh, that's not to say that the other characters don't have their own uh, fantastically horrifying downward slide. We've already talked about uh, Jennifer Connelly, uh, Connelly as Marion Silver and her uh, journey into the underground sex trade. Uh, Jared Leto um, has some uh, forearm problems. There are um, anyone who uh, you know had questioned up to Dallas Buyers Club whether Jared Leto could. Uh, pull off an Oscar-worthy performance, need only go back to this. Absolutely. I, mean, I, think, I think he is uh, just as uh, brilliant here as he is in Dallas Buyers Club. He, I think, is has always proven himself a rock uh, rock solid actor, even when it's stuff like, uh, uh, like watching Panic Room, which is a very fun kind of different type of film but it's it's very uh it still works really well in context of the film that it is here he really taps into uh just kind of a um just a a darker place and he um plays that character who again has these dreams but never quite is able to figure out how to actually make them happen and i think he does that so well and Man, that hole in his arm is disgusting. No, oh. uh, that is his uh, particular demon. He, uh, uh, they, he and his buddy Tyrone, uh, played obviously by um, uh, Marlon Wayans, decide they need to go down to Florida uh, to get to buy wholesale uh, some of their product and uh, and get it back up so that they can make more money off of it. And uh, along the way. Uh, Tyrone discovers that what uh, Harry has been concealing uh, is a horrifically infected uh, 
what do they even call it? What is it? It's almost like his, his, it's like his, his track it, marks. It's his track marks. It's his track marks, yeah. right? So this yeah. is this is how I'm... It's been a long time since I was on the street. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so it's, uh, it, it is, it's really, uh, it's grotesque. And it's, it's so uh, grotesque that Harry ends up moving, uh, being, being arrested uh, and losing his arm. Yep. No. Yeah, that is uh, uh, almost the the most fitting and most horrifying uh, climax to that incredibly intense uh, finale we have in the third act. Uh, just the climax of all four stories coming together and having that intense climax uh, at the same time. Sarah getting her shock treatment, Marion doing the sex show, uh, Damon stirring that soup and, uh, and then Jared getting his arm cut off and you just hear that saw start up and the way that it cuts in and the, the saw whines as it cuts through skin and bone is just almost like the most fitting conclusion to the horror of everything that we've seen. Um, and and you're right. Talk a little bit about the visuals of that climax. I mean, the way they construct that sequence, the way Arnofsky constructs that sequence is, is particularly fitting. What Can you describe it, the visual uh, well, nature of it? it? Well, I think it ties into a lot of what the visual nature is. And we'll talk about all the other visual tricks that uh, Aronofsky is, is playing all through this. But I, he, he really... Um, uses a very uh it really is just his cutting style he created this intense cutting style um that ties in perfectly with the music which we have to talk about um and uh and just the action going on on the screen of just like this rapid fire cutting from one scene to the other that creates this beat that we keep um seeing and feeling as we go from sarah getting shocked to uh to marion in in the act to uh to the doctors prepping his arm to the the stirring of the soup and just everything is just like creating this beat and it really it's it's i i think in this particular scene it's it's mostly just kind of a, a master class in in using the editing as a tool to kind of create that um that um the beat that continues to uh, to speed up. It's almost like this heartbeat as we as we get uh, faster and faster before it all kind of slows down and crashes. Uh, that I think is the is the thing that we see. Uh, it, it almost creates this pulsating effect that you're watching there that it, it, you can't kind of slow down and, and you can't look away. The editing is done by uh, the the wonderfully talented Jay Rabinowitz. Um, have we talked about him? I can't. I don't think no. we have. Uh, it's been around a long, well, since the late uh, late eighties. Early nineties, yeah, early nineties. Yeah, 80s. Uh, most recently, um, you know, uh, edited Rosewater for uh, John Stewart. So he's he's kind of been on my mind a little bit. But uh, his, you know, he has he he very much has. Uh, uh, well, he's he's got kind of that. Uh, he's he's got that Aronofsky, Terrence Malick. He's got sort of that he, that. Uh, he's in that class uh, of of filmmaker, and um, you know I think he has an incredibly delicate touch 
in in the film, just as you say, knowing exactly exactly where to cut, exactly how to position the frame uh, with the music is uh, is a particular gift, uh, and and I think he has a, a, a wonderfully intuitive touch to this um, to to his work here. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, the uh, okay. So, do you want to? Are we are we moving on from uh, from? Because well, I, I also want to talk about music, and that that seems to be a nice place to go. What I, do you want to talk about first? Well, I just I, I I just I know we already mentioned Marlon Wayans, but I just have to say, having yeah. only seen Marlon Wayans in comedies ever, uh, I had no idea that this was in him. <laughs> Yeah, it really uh, floored me to see him go to a place like this, and it. Uh, I think it was a. Uh, it was one of those. Things, I mean, this was the same year that he did Dungeons and Dragons and Scary Movie. Yeah. So, so just knowing that this was in there, I I, I had no idea, and it was very exciting for me to see that uh, Damon Wayans did have it in him to Marlon, actually Marlon uh, sorry sorry Marlon Wayans had it in him to uh, uh, to pull a character like this out of him uh, out of himself and create something that uh had uh again all of these characters I think had to find this place of hope and loss and we have these flashbacks of him and his mother and kind of that connection that is created there. Uh, but then we also have the loss for him. And, and he really is the only character I feel that there's much hope for or any potential hope for, if if anyone. Um, at least I like to think that there is. I, I feel like, okay, he's in prison. Maybe he might be able to find a way to get himself out of this whole thing. Uh, I don't know, but I hope. Um, you know, uh, it's, but, you know that that always um, that, that always strikes me, right? Uh, as a and and again, I don't know what the what the bent is on the book um, in, in terms of race in this film or in the in the story. Uh, but isn't it interesting that I I also have the most hope, uh, and I think we're set up as audience members to have the most hope for uh, Marlon Wayans' character, and he's the black guy. Mm-hmm. Like all of the the you know the stereotypical um, you know all of the stereotypes are kind of turned on their ear in this film, and I think that's one of the reasons that it's so challenging is because race yet one other stereotype that is turned on its ear um, is you know we're left seeing how this character uh, Marlon Wayans' character is is set to be rehabilitated. He keeps all his limbs. He's not on. He's not getting electroshock therapy. He's not performing in an under ground sex show he's the guy who gets into the track of rehabilitation at the end of this film and and that's the one i i i walk away saying gosh thank goodness that guy's gonna make it yeah uh, yeah because it it's not a- it's not what we would normally expect from a film like this right right exactly what a breath of fresh air here here uh okay so and then where would you like I to th- go from here well i do also just want to mention christopher mcdonald I think, yes. that, I think Tappy Tibbins, Tappy Tibbins, <laughs> we've got a winner, is is a great character. It's it's a small role and it, uh, it's not like a huge stretch or anything, but it's a really fun character and it is an absolutely critical character in the in the context of the story, creating this almost um, 
Tony Robbins-esque sort of character that wasn't in the original novel um, that really uh, is, 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 I think, a very good visual interpretation of this connection that Sarah has to TV. And in particular, it turns incredibly frightening when red sarah the really freaky uh version of of sarah in her tv dreams comes out of the tv along with tappy tibbins and brings like the whole crowd in and they start doing this this mad uh mambo around sarah sitting in her chair it's it's <laughs> one of the most frightening things to watch and uh, you know christopher mcdonald is one of those uh, uh actors who you know he'll pop into things whether it's a bit player or a bigger role he always brings something to the table i always have a great time watching him i think one of my favorite performances of his is thelma and louise um as daryl i think he's so <laughs> so good in that role uh, I just love him. Um, but in this, this is just this uh, really solid character that he created here that um, works really well in context of uh, of the story. And, uh, yeah, I just wanted to make sure we mentioned him. Well, and you know who else we didn't mention is uh, uh, Dr. Pill, uh, Peter Maloney, mm-hmm. uh, who, was, who we talked briefly about in The Thing. He played George Bennings in The Thing. Uh, another smallish, uh, interesting role here. He's the you know, mom keeps going back for the drugs, right? Uh, for to Doctor Bill, and I find is just sort of wandering in the frame and wandering back out. Uh, in in that case, not turning any particular stereotype of the medical community on its ear, uh, but playing right into its warm and fuzzy hands. Um, I I particularly enjoyed seeing him pop up here. What's great about that role is is he said that um, Aronofsky gave him some of the most challenging direction that he's had, and that was when when he first comes into the room when Sarah comes in to get the drugs for the first time. Mm-hmm. Aronofsky told him, "Whatever you do, do not make eye contact with her." And so he had a really hard time. But if you watch that, he never looks up at her. He's yeah. looking down in his notebook the whole time. He said it was one of the hardest bits of direction that he ever had been given. But it was, <laughs> I think it was critical to, it, to the part. Well, it is critical to exactly to, to playing off that stereotype to, because that's, of course, that's what we think that doctors do. Right. Uh, yeah. Very, very attention. well played. They don't pay attention. That's what we believe. Right. Sorry, doctors. All of them. All the doctors. All the doctors. Except mine. Except who's really, really, I know you listen. Always listening. On to uh, the creators of the film. Uh, you know, we, we haven't actually yet talked about Arnofsky. Um, you want to give me your film school pitch about why you love him so much? Well, he's a director that um, I think is always trying to do something interesting. Even if I don't always like his films. Pi, I mean, I, I thought it was a very interesting, low-budget indie film. It uh, it did some interesting things. It was a hard film to watch, uh, but I did find it really interesting. The Fountain, I also found very uh, interesting to watch, even if I didn't connect with the story that much. Um, the Wrestler, Black Swan, I thought both of those were fantastic. Noah, I think he really did something very unique that a lot of people weren't expecting. And I, you know, I think a lot of, um, religious people, uh, uh, ended up, I, I, well, I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of religious people ended up finding it, um, 
a failure on the part of telling the story of Noah as they see how it's told in the Bible. Um, but I found it incredibly interesting and uh, kind of a, just a beautiful look at that story. Um, he's a filmmaker who is always doing something. I, I mean, maybe now we talk about some of the, the techniques that he throws in here because I think he is not a filmmaker who says, okay, well, let's just put the camera here and have them say this and then we'll do this and we'll do this. He's looking for ways to use the camera and use the tools presented in front of him to to enhance the story and to um, tell the story in a way that is visual because it is such a visual medium. Um, I think right out of the box, we jump into split screens, which is an amazing opportunity that we, we rarely see. I think there are some filmmakers who use them well, some filmmakers who use them uh, uh, sometimes well and sometimes not uh, Brian De Palma. Um, <laughs> I think Aronofsky uses it really well here. The way that he does these split screens, split screens to um, give a kind of a, an interesting subjective look of both characters' points of view at the same time, while also creating this world where these characters are together but separate. Um, you know, you've got that split screen at the beginning between Sarah and Harry, but I think one of the most powerful split screens for me is when you have Harry and Marion when they're uh, kind of laying in bed together, having a conversation. And he could have just shot that as a wide shot, seeing both of these two together. But what he does is he actually shoots it in split screen. And and by doing that, separating these characters and creating this, um, you know, this, this constant separation that fits what he's trying to do with, uh, with the film. Um, you know, aside from that, he's got what he calls kind of these, these hip hop montages that are just these, uh, kind of just these intense, uh, you know, a lot of cuts, um, doing these, um, um, really cool montages of like how they're injecting, uh, when they get high and you've got quick shot of the eye, uh, the, the iris, uh, dilating, you've got a quick shot of the, the, uh, cotton ball in the spoon, mm -hmm. you, got, you know, the flame, all those different things. Um, the sound design, the way they play with that, he's got this thing that they called the snorry cam. And that's where you got the camera almost like on a harness on top of each actor. And you get that almost GoPro. We're almost, it doesn't phase us anymore because we get all these GoPro films all the time that we're seeing now which is essentially what he was doing back then um, with a much more complicated rig, um, which he uses on three of the four characters. He does a triple exposure at one point of Sarah Goldfarb as she's kind of dancing around her, her room. There's rotoscoping. He's got the vibrator cam shaky thing as they're kind of screaming at the end and the camera's shaking like it's reacting to their sound waves. A lot of POV, uh, great time-lapse usage. There's a you know flare at the end, uh, slow motion, fast motion, um, fisheye lenses. He plays with all of it. And and I think that's what makes me so excited about watching this film and watching stuff that Aron Aronofsky does in his films is he's looking for opportunities to use his tools to tell the most visual uh, representation of the story that he has in the script form. I couldn't agree more. And you just said all of the things uh, that I agree with. 
Um, so I have nothing really to add, but I, but I, I do want to, I, you know, I, I, the things I wrote down that, uh, you know, particularly these montages, the jump cut, jump cutting, uh, that he does to, to such great effect. And in this film, it, it's, it, it's to great effect because it, it, you know, it's a visual technique that specifically accelerates a, a story point, which is, you know, the cyclical nature of drug abuse. Uh, and, and for all of these characters, we get a, uh, at least one montage of them doing drugs again and again and again, or at least one repetition of them doing drugs again and again and again. And it cuts from all of these things. In Sarah's case, it cuts from pill to pill to pill, purple in the morning, red, orange in the afternoon, whatever, whatever. Um, and, uh, or, you know, I'm eating an egg or a grapefruit. There's a great, great uh, little jump cut uh, where it's talking about the egg and grapefruit and how upset she is that she has to go on this particular diet before she finds the pills, where we just have a shot of a plate with an egg and a plate with a bowl of an uneaten uh, uneaten grapefruit cut in half and then a jump cut to the egg shell and the empty husk of the grapefruit and it's just a a wonderful uh, it accelerates our emotional appeal for sarah that we know that the diet is hard because she was able to eat that so quickly uh it was that jump cut that told us how quickly that how uh, that she was able to eat it uh, it's a wonderful visual technique but the uh, you know when you talk about the the you know the shaky cam and the rotoscoping I can't help but but imagine that those techniques are are essentially a, you know breaking the fourth wall for us as an audience uh, as audience members that these techniques give us the sense that the film itself is responding to what is going on in it and that gives this piece in particular a sense of texture uh, a sense of involvement that you know w- there is a sequence where Wayans screams at the bars and everything starts to shake around us at the end and it feels like your television is uh, is actually shaking around you you know I mean it is a sense that you are involved and taking part uh, and that your world around you is is responding uh, to to what is going on I, I there aren't very many movies that feel as encompassing as is sort of enveloping as requiem for a dream in that regard absolutely it's uh it's storytelling um in the world of film much like edgar wright does as we've talked about him and and how he uses the camera to sure. make his stories feel alive but t- done in a way um, not just for fun. I mean, Edgar Wright is brilliant at it. Don't get me wrong. It works so well for his stories to tell the types of stories that he's telling. But in Aronofsky's hands, when he's really putting forth a story that um, he's really trying to say something, he uses the tools to help him say those things. There's a sense of violence to it, that he's reaching out and dragging you along with it. And that that's what I can't help. But it is so difficult to put this film down once you start it, because it really feels like Aronofsky is reaching out and dragging you by the by the collar uh, along with these characters in this film. It, it, it feels that uh, that real. Yeah, absolutely. So, we think highly of him then. Highly of him. And speaking of a lot of the stuff that we were talking about um, just now, I think that uh, you know we should also point out that uh, his partner in crime on uh, creating a lot of these shots in the look is Matthew Libatique. Yes, cinematography. 
cinematography who I believe has worked with him on uh, on everything that he's done. Uh, yeah, since uh, I mean he had done some projects uh, pre Pi, but yeah, Pi Requiem. Um, let's see if he did uh, the Fountain, uh, Black Swan. I don't think he did um, the Wrestler. I think that's the one that he ended up not working on with him. He Talk may about have been- a guy who has his hands in a lot of things. Uh, Matthew oh, yeah. Labatique, I mean, he, uh, you know, he does these Arnofsky films. He does a ton of music videos for high-profile artists. Uh, and, uh, you know, the big-budget uh, tentpole films, Iron Man, Iron Man 2, Cowboys and Aliens. Yeah. Not as bad as most people think. <laughs> I still haven't bothered trying to watch that one. It, it is not as bad as you will undoubtedly think. <laughs> Uh, in any Uh, case uh very talented uh guy and and you think about you know the the multiple exposures the uh you know those the uh, what did you say it was the the wide angle gopro the snotty cam what was the snorry cam snorry cam uh (laughs) you know those are those are uh cinematographic techniques right those are those are are um you know, being able to think about how and where to put the right technology in place to capture the story. It's a, it's incredibly innovative. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The Snorri cam, it's also, it's like a chest cam, body mounted mm-hmm. camera. S-N-O-R-R-I. <laughs> I trying to figure out. That's really a snotty cam? What is that? Snotty cam. It's, a, it's named after two Icelandic uh, photographers and directors, Einar Snorri and I'm not even sure how you pronounce that. Ewer Snorri. Ewer. Ewer Snorri. Ewer Snorri and I were And I were Snorri. I were Snorri and your Snorri? The Snorri brothers. The Snorri bros. They're not related. That's very funny. I did not actually know this. Have you used a Snorri cam yourself? I'm looking at I images have, of the Snorri cam, and I can see, you know, it's it's a chest-mounted steady cam. Right, it's not exactly. actually steady. It's not. The whole idea is that it it's, really gives, in fact, not the, steady at all. It, well, it gives the ultimate POV is really what it's doing. It it puts you into the mindset because you're almost locked into the viewpoint of whoever it is that's carrying the camera. Right. Yeah. Creepy. Yeah. Not so, light. I can't imagine it is. It really depends on the type of camera you're using. And I don't know what they shot uh, this uh, film with. I don't know if... Uh, I'm assuming it's 35, so that means yeah. they're... You know, but for those scenes, were they using a 16-millimeter camera and then uh, blow it up? I don't know. Hmm. Just don't know. I'm looking at a, a picture here, thanks to Internet, of Jennifer Connelly wearing the Snorri cam. Oh, well, there you go. Yes, and it's... Uh, it looks like, uh, you know, you wouldn't forget it's there. Let's just say that. <laughs> nice and big, huh? Yeah, you, you would just, you'd know. You'd know. Uh, let's, talk about, uh, let's talk about music a little bit, shall we? Yes, we absolutely need to talk about the music of this film because it's, uh, it's every bit as perfect for the film in context of what Aronofsky is doing with the visuals. 
Clint Mansell is the uh, is the composer. Why? Tell me. Uh, tell me why it uh, it, it affects you so. It, well, and Clint is another person that has kind of started with Aronofsky. Pi was his first uh, film as composer, and he's gone on to. Uh, do I think uh, think almost all the rest of his films except for uh, oh no he did do Noah for some reason I was thinking he didn't but yeah he's done all of his films uh, really interesting composer um, sometimes his stuff um, works better than others but it's always very interesting I think and he's doing uh, something really interesting here he does just with bringing the Kronos Quartet in to uh, bring a lot to the music and their stuff is just the the haunting strings that you get in done in really fascinating ways just the the intense like staccato nature of some of it and uh the the pulsating stuff and he throws in some electronics and he does all these samples like i i heard that he's got a a sample in here of uh you know some like bruce lee punch sound effect or something like that that he kind of throws in to uh to blend with the music and that's uh it makes for an intense listen, but, uh, you know, this was a film, I just remember walking out of it, it the first time when I saw it in the theater, feeling like the music was, there couldn't be any other music for the film. It was the most perfect music for this film because it's 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 every bit as intense as the visuals that Aron- Aronofsky is presenting. And uh, it, 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 I mean, really, it, it almost like is the heartbeat uh, your own heartbeat that you're that is pulsing as you're watching this this kind of horror show that it kind of devolves into, and um, it's it's just done in a way that um, I, I I don't know it really um, gets under my skin, but in a way that I think is critical for the film and not in a way that I find annoying in any way. I have the very same reaction. I couldn't help but having the same reaction that I have to uh, Trent Reznor's score for uh, Girl Dragon Tattoo. Um, yeah. it, it, it's that same sort of grinding thing, but you can't. Uh, it, it, just when you feel like you can't listen to it anymore, something incredibly dark and hauntingly beautiful comes in yeah. uh, and uh, ends up. You know, it was funny. I mean, I, I, it's been long enough since I, I watched this film. The main, uh, that sort of Lux Eterna, um, which has been used in a number of places um, since then, sounds so familiar to me that I'd forgotten that it was originally here. Uh, right. It was originally from this score, uh, but it is, it's that sort of throbbing, haunting, uh, and at the same time, just beautiful um, uh, music and it really fits, but it's, it's one of those scores that you can listen to. It's good work music. I actually agree. I, this is not, uh, we've talked about some film scores that, that work really well in context of the film, but are hard to listen to outside of it. This one, I mean, I completely agree. I think this music is really listenable and I can, I mean, yes, there's definitely some intense um, parts to it, but there's just some absolutely just, crushingly beautiful pieces yeah absolutely agree it really fits for um uh for the film again i feel un- like he unjustly uh, was not nominated for best original score crouching Who? tiger hidden dragon one uh done tan it did i think great music for that film um the other nominees were uh rachel portman's chocolate han zimmer for gladiator and neo morricone for Milena and john williams for the patriot i would pick this above any of them it's st- i like 
other than maybe Gladiator, I, I, I don't know if I could actually hum anything from any of those films right now. Not that that's saying <laughs> that that defines what's going to win, but uh, this film, uh, the music, I think, does what a score should. It it, it um, integrates perfectly into the film, enhances all of the uh, the emotions within the film, and uh, it's. I think it's just it's a really dark film, and again, people overlook a lot of things from this film because of that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Although I I do think it was uh, I I think it's a strong second. In the race against Crouching Tiger, I love that score. It's good. It's good. I mean, it's it it. Yeah, I. You're right, but I'd still uh, pick this one. I, well, I hear, but you know, it's a grudge Strong. pick, <laughs> right? I'll <laughs> <laughs> talk about. Uh, I know we sort of jumped around a bit, a, a little bit. You want to talk about um, um, any uh, visual effects? Uh, yeah. Um, this was a, uh, I think Aronofsky brought in uh, some of his people that he had uh, worked with um, before. Uh, I think they started working with each other um, around the time of this or maybe just before. But the company Amoeba Proteus, um, they did some really interesting effects in this film that uh, that work really well. Whether it's kind of creating the, the interesting... Um, scenes that you needed some some rotoscoping like where uh sarah is walking down the street and it's almost like she's walking in slow motion but everyone's moving fast motion around her or the same thing happening to her in the doctor's office Mm -hmm. um one of the most powerful moments for me and it's one of those moments that i don't think people actually even realize what's happening visual effects wise i think it's just something that affects you um uh, psychologically as you watch the film, but the moment where they finish um, the uh, the shock treatment on Sarah Goldfarb, you've got this shot this this shot of her uh, overhead looking down on her as as she's just kind of laying there, and they actually went in and they left her head the way it is, but they took her features, her eyes, nose, and mouth, and they actually just they they slowly shrunk them just ever so slightly as she's kind of fading away. It's really awful. It really is. It's just <laughs> awful. It's uh but it's so it's, powerful. It's so subtle and yes, it's so powerful and it's horrible. Why yes. do you do that to an audience? I don't know. But you're right. It's that it's that it, it's that visual impact of her fading away. We know she's fading away. We know she's gone. Uh but we get to see it. Oh, just Yeah gross it's it really is horrifying yeah. and then you've got the great like the the effects that are done on set like the fantastic frightening fridge monster yeah practical effects uh like like bringing the appliances to life and uh it, you know it, the thing ends up uh it looks pretty scary it's uh yeah it's pretty terrifying i mean aside from the the wonderful sound design that goes along with that which i think is uh incredibly haunting it's it's just intense but man when that thing finally rips open and uh, like comes at her and you've got that just like flaming red interior of the fridge it's uh it's pretty scary yeah nice uh, nice and um uh, complimentary of the in camera work uh, the visual effects on this film yeah, absolutely. Just mentioning uh, Hubert Selby Jr., I think, as the uh, author of this book uh, that that it's based on. Uh, he wrote this back in 1978. He also wrote Last Exit to Brooklyn. Um, 
a, a writer who I, you know, it's just interesting listening to him speak because he's somebody who uh, really kind of preaches the whole notion that that talent is uh, uh, is uh, you can work to find the talent that it's not necessarily something that's born within you. He says that he uh, it took a, it takes him a long time to be able to write. Um, the quality stuff that he writes. Um, he's not a good writer and he really struggles to make stuff good. And I think that's really interesting. Uh, it's a, it's a perspective you don't hear from people all the time. You always say, Oh, talent is, is born, not made or whatever. And, and he really is kind of somebody who preaches, you can make it. Um, you just have to really put your mind to it and you have to fight and struggle and do it every day. And, but you can make it happen. You can, and, you just have to believe Andy. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, you just have to believe. Are you pulling Peter Pan back in, man? <laughs> I'm so glad you got that. <laughs> Everybody clap, clap if you believe. Oh man! Oh, that's good. I, you know, yeah. I haven't read. Uh, I haven't read any of his work. Have you read it? Did you read Last Exit to Brooklyn? He hasn't. I, he hasn't written have- much. No, I, I haven't read it. And uh, it's, um, but you know, I don't know, because of uh, just rewatching this, and uh, you know, I haven't even seen um, Last Exit to Brooklyn. Um, it's one of those things that I feel uh, a little bit of guilt after rewatching this. The fact that when I first watched this, it didn't inspire me to, to jump on it uh, quicker and actually read some of his stuff. But now, looking at this again, I'm like, I really need to read Last Exit to Brooklyn and Requiem for a Dream. I really want to kind of put those under my belt because I think, uh, you know, I love this film so much as the creator of the original source material. I feel like I owe it to him. You do. He's keeping score. He's passed away, but he's keeping score. He is. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, all right. What are your other goodies? You always have goodies. Well, um, let me look at my goodies. I, I think that the the one uh, little goodie that I wanted to throw your way oh. is that somebody in the props department is named Peter Wright. Oh, that was me. It was you. I didn't want to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to just let you have this kind of high. I know you like this movie, but I was there the whole time. You were there. You were there. Yeah. Just didn't want to. I was actually up. the fridge master. <laughs> <laughs> A fridge wrangler. I'm sorry, they called me. Right. Nice. Nice. Um, um, oh, okay. So a couple last things. Um, I think it's very, uh, very fitting that um, the kind of that music style, that mambo music that uh, Clint created for this. Um, Darren kind of describes that mad mambo as Bugs Bunny dancing on Elmer Fudd's head, which I think is very fitting that music does have that kind of manic Looney Tunes feel to it. And when they come, when everybody from the TV comes and starts dancing around Sarah, it actually really feels that way. And I think that's a great description of that. And, um, just one of those things that uh, I think is <laughs> very, uh, it's, it's almost like horrifying. You throw that into it and it's, uh, it seems funny, but then you kind of think about what's happening. You're like, oh, it's really good. It's just so shocking. That's right. You know, you think of this, Hey, did you see Requiem for a dream? It makes me think of Bugs Bunny doing anything. <laughs> you have, a, you know, you've probably, uh, gone down the rabbit hole a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. 
Um, uh, and then the, la- the last thing that I wanted to say mm-hmm. is um, the fact that the um, the only time we actually see uh, a needle injection is the uh, and it's, it's horrifying, but it's it's when um, it's, it's in the, the volcano. It's the last time we see him inject, and yeah. it's yeah, it's the volcano. We see him inject into his horrifying arm wound, and it just furthers the whole idea that this is not something you ever want uh, done. You know, it's just yeah. so gross, so gross. Yeah, it's a do as I say, not as I do moment. <laughs> yes, exactly. This film exactly. was uh, was well received. Critically, it was well-received, yes. It was very well-received critically. This was a film, um, you know, it was his second film. It came out in 2000. He did come up with uh, $4,500, uh, or sorry, $4,500. Wow, <laughs> things you could do these days. Uh, $4.5 million. Uh, so, you know, a pretty decent budget for a second film. Um, I believe that he had done some developing um, of this film in the Sundance uh, Sundance writers group and stuff like that. A great uh, opportunity for filmmakers that are, are kind of proving themselves and on, on track to do some great stuff. Um, and it helped him develop some of his, uh, his film. In fact, they actually helped him. They convinced him that at the end of the film, you need to have a last moment between Marion and Harry. And that's what uh, led him to add that moment of the phone call, which I think is a very touching moment between the two of them, especially Jennifer Connelly is just an amazing performance in that scene. Absolutely. But, agree. But anyway, he did get 4.5 million uh, to make this film. I couldn't find anything on prints and advertising. It, again, releasing an unrated film. I don't know how much artisan ended up putting behind it, but um, uh, it ended up domestically, uh, not grossing uh, more than it cost, about three point six million, but internationally about uh, a little more, three point seven million. So it did make its money back, all told. Um, adjusted profit per finished minute, it ended up making about thirty eight thousand dollars per finished minute. So it's not one of the highest ones on our list, but like you said, critically, um, the critics really uh, felt that there was an incredibly strong film here. I, you know, that's a relief. A little bit, but it made its money back. It's a great film, and it's and it made its money back. At least somebody saw it. And it, what is most interesting to me is that you know I think you get to see a little bit of the impact of uh, the ratings board um, when you compare international uh, re- uh, tickets to uh, international receipts to domestic. In this case, uh, I think you're probably right. They, you know, we we see, uh, you know, we see a. a take suffering in the u.s but you know abroad um particularly europe uh less uh, restriction uh if yeah. i recall in particularly in 2000 um around seeing films that that are you know uh, not suffering the uh the the might of the ratings board they don't shy away from stuff uh, quite as much and and i don't think well, other they're prude, uh, they're prude about very different things <laughs> right. Every country exactly. has its prude. Let's just we can get that out of the way. That is true. But this one I don't think is one that they're prudish about. Yeah. Yeah. So I that's interesting. That is interesting to me. Yeah, very uh, much so. Let's rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you can catch up with all the films that we like, see if the films that we like match up with the films that you like. 
and uh, and then we could uh, get our films to go out on a date. Maybe oh. see maybe see a movie. Maybe get a nice bowl of soup. Is that weird? Films going to see a film? I don't think it's weird. I'm not. I'm not filmist. <laughs> well, good. Films can do whatever they want. Okay. It's 2014 going on 2015. Film That's wants right. to take in a film. It can do. Go ahead and do just that. What an old way of thinking I had. Thank you for straightening me out. You just have to believe. <laughs> All right. You ready? Oh, I'm ready. Requiem for a Dream. This is going to be hard because uh-huh. I, I hold Requiem in very high esteem um, and higher than a lot of these films. And I would probably put it pretty high on my list. But it also is a hard film to watch. So we'll see where it lands. Requiem for a Dream or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I, and see, I would go Requiem. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, in, in terms of what the film does, but are we ranking it again? Are we ranking it because of, of which film we would put on first? I'm ranking it... Uh, We've only again. done this 170,000 times. I know, I know. I'm ranking this on the grounds that I, again, like I said at the beginning, when this film is over, I have a huge smile on my face because I, I, I can tell that I just watched a master at work. And as tough as the story is to watch, mm-hmm. I am blown away every time. Okay, I, I agree with that. It's bad. And I'm smiling, but I'm in the fetal position. <laughs> Okay, I'm, I'll give you that. On on those grounds, I I, I agree with you. Requiem okay. for a dream. Requiem for a dream or City of God. Requiem for a dream. I agree. Requiem for a dream. Requiem for a dream or The World's End. Requiem for a dream. I agree. Requiem for a dream or Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would go uh, Requiem for a dream on this one. Yeah, in in context of what I was just saying, I'm going to go Requiem for a Dream. What? <laughs> what? All right. Requiem for a Dream or Inception? Um, Requiem for a Dream. I agree. Requiem for a Dream or Seven? Seven master filmmakers at work i will go uh, these interestingly two films that both uh yeah. i i'm left with that same feeling at the end of both of these yes films. so uh yes seven and so that i know what's in the box <laughs> so double win there you go well that puts requiem at number five on our list oh i'm so glad it stopped there Look at that. <laughs> I don't think I any further. <laughs> I would have just held my breath and passed out. That's true. Yes, right. But yeah, number five out of 163. It shot right up there. Nice place to be. Indeed, Where? Indeed. Uh, so this was, uh, this was in our lovely Ellen Burstyn series. Um, and uh, where do we take it from here? That was uh, you know, kind of the end of our short Ellen Burstyn series, which was a great series. Uh, but now... Pete, it's time to cheer things up. It's time for the holidays. Let's watch a <laughs> holiday movie. Oh, okay. Let's let's do that. What, let's watch. Pray tell. Where would what <laughs> holiday movie would we watch? Uh, something. Does it involve miracles and numbered streets? Perhaps. Actually, it doesn't. Well, it involves. And does it involve uh, a crafty pets that tell us a story of of uh, love, loss, but redemption? Unfortunately, no. Does it? Does it? 
<laughs> I, give, I give up, Andy. Tell me, what are we going to watch? We're going to jump back to 1947. We're going to watch the Cary Grant, Loretta Young, David Niven film, The Bishop's Wife. David Niven? Mm-hmm. Directed by Henry Coster. I'm looking forward to this movie. I am, Cary, too. Cary I've Grant. never seen it. I've never seen the uh, the remake, The Preacher's Wife. So I'm I'm looking forward to uh, this kind of a thing with our our holiday movies. We end up picking these things that we've never seen, and I'm I'm quite looking forward to it. I am too. This is this is going to be a lot of fun, and um, boy, and then we, uh, we well, let's just say our holiday set. I think is a it's a pair of kings. Yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> So the Bishop's Live next week, and uh, a happy, uh, fine, happy holidays uh, to everybody. Go catch this one and hope it's good, because we don't know. That's right. We don't know. We're just, <laughs> just hoping. Fingers crossed. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I guess that's it. i um, I got to go to bed. I've got a bagel and lox sitting on the counter that I think I'm going to go eat, and, and maybe some jelly donuts and some other things in my fridge And it's uh, it's from uh, MMA fan. And it's a five star, and I never go five star. But Whoa. it's a five star because I see there is some uh, that we've got numerology at work. Because you know we just flick charted this, and it landed where number five. Okay, and the first review that I pick up is from MMA fan. Nothing else like it. Five stars. He writes of the two hundred DVDs I own, this is my top five. Wow. Also, MMA fan agrees with us. The movie is brutally, truthfully shown in a fictitious story. That's that's true. If you ask anyone who has seen this movie what they felt like after, they will all say the same thing. It leaves you sick and sad and makes it all worth talking about. Clint Mansell also does an outstanding job with the music. The soundtrack is amazing. I've never seen any movie that left me scared of what I could put my body slash life through. It opens your eyes. And we'll leave you stunned at the ending. Mm. You go, MMA fan. Amazon here, loves here. you. Your turn. Well, guest account doesn't agree with MMA fan. Ooh. <laughs> guest account gave it one star and said, boring, pretentious, and moralizing. Aronofsky uses every gimmicky camera and editing move in the book in an attempt to jolt some life into this otherwise leaden addiction movie. It doesn't work. Ellen Burstyn chews the scenery. Jared Leto commits an oral atrocity with his oral atrocity <laughs> with his Brooklyn accent. And Jennifer Connelly just sits there. Every now and then you catch her using one of the two expressions in her repertoire. This movie is pointless. Oh. I think they saw a different movie. And and guest account has some 
you know, some serious uh, comments left on their review. Do tell. Anything good? Uh, just how wrong they are, really. Oh. It's, oh. It, you know, it's the fact that guest account, um, you know, probably put in the name guest account because they didn't want people to know that they are an idiot. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.